Richer. I, I just like the name um, because it's named after that Elvis Costello song and I always wanted to call a radio show that. Uh, but yes, yes, uh, this is a show about literature. Uh, we'll do one book per week and we'll talk about that book. I'll stick the info up on social media so you'll be able to find it on Reddit, um, Twitter, uh, Facebook, so th that's so that you guys can join in the conversation, and it'll be a little bit like the uh, like a book club. Uh, we'll talk about the themes and uh, cultural impact, shit like that. Um, now, if I didn't do that, uh, you just hear my perspective for the whole hour, and you, you don't want to hear that. Now. Although, although that's that's kind of what we're going to have to start with, because this is the first episode. Um, I haven't got all that social media stuff set up, and if I did, nobody would know what to do with it anyway, because, you know, the, the first show hasn't gone to air yet. Uh, but when this show does go to air, I will have that set up. You'll be able to look on Facebook or whatever and find us there. Uh, you can get into the conversation about whatever that week's book is. So, uh, for the first episode, which uh, unfortunately is just me, what I thought we'd do is we'd do a book that's been around for a very long time. It's, it's one of my favourites. 
and uh oh it is my favorite and it's been around for such a long time that a lot of good conversation has gone on around it which i can pair it off um we won't need you guys just yet but i will need you very soon um that book is the great gatsby uh for subsequent episodes i'll i'll put the book whatever that book is up on social media so you can um read it in advance or whatever now the great gatsby uh that brings me to the song that we opened with that's lover's blindness it's a cover of u2 track and it's by jack white it was also used in the recent hollywood adaptation of the great gatsby um now what I'll do another thing that'll uh just break up the tedium of me talking for an hour is I'll play a heap of music and I'll theme that music around the book now of course uh so this is going to be music about yearning uh yearning for love mostly because uh that's all pop music is romance at least 90% of it um or doing it that's the other thing that they write songs about but there's more to the book than that I, I assure you that even if you haven't read it you know there's more to the book than just kissy stuff so um anyway books about yearning and wanting to do it music about yearning and wanting to do it that is coming up we have another cover uh she's not there i think the original was by the the band from the 60s the zombies i think um but this one is by nico k nico case and nick cave she's not there 1 2 3 Chapter 1 In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way. 
and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and detach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person, and so it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician, because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently I have feigned sleep, preoccupation, or a hostile levity when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. And, after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures... Then there was something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men.
That was David Bowie with Be My Wife. And before that, there was the opening chapter of The Great Gatsby. Now, I want to talk about that opening chapter. There's an old writing technique where you write the first page last. So you know that way you've got everything set out. And you can use that first page for a bit of foreshadowing. Um, you know, so that you know what you're introducing people to. Now, I strongly suspect that that's what F. Scott Fitzgerald did with that, uh, you know, did with that introduction right there. Now, this could just be because I've read the damn thing so many times. But, I just feel like that first chapter, um, foreshadows perfectly what comes after it. Now, this, that, that's part of the reason, uh, this is probably my favourite book, because it's, um, there's a lot of things like that, it's, it's very densely symbolic. And so you get situations like that, where the themes just get summed up, uh, like that. And you see, there's a spoiler alert here, at the end of the book, things don't end up too well for poor old Gadsby. And there's a scene that they cut out of the recent movie, uh, which I was a bit pissed off about. Um, like I say, things don't end too well for poor old Gadsby. And so the scene is at his funeral, where the only two people who show up are the narrator and Gatsby's long-lost father. Now, that's a scene that I think sums up the theme of the movie, and not just like that passage introduces it, but sums it up. Um, and I've always described that theme as being rich people are awful. Because, you see, in that first chapter... The narrator talks about his affection for Gadsby. And he sees it, he says that he feels that affection, despite the fact that Gatsby represents everything that he loathes about, uh, about the upper classes. You know, the money and the social climbing and just the hollowness of it all. But he realizes that Gatsby being a self-made striver, uh, is the noblest of them all. He's, a, he's almost a saint compared to the rest, basically. And so, the reason I believe that first chapter is foreshadowing everything is because he's almost lashing out. He, he's, he's almost saying, I love this guy that you guys abandoned. You're all dicks. So now that I've said my bit about that, what I think we'll do next uh, is we'll go back to some music, then we'll go back to the audiobook. I really want to get onto the hotel scene, um, because that, that to me is where the story hits its climax. It's the dramatic heart of the story, and... One of the other things that I love about this book is the propulsiveness of it, the way it's so lively. So uh, that's that's why I want to take you straight to the climax. You goody. But we'll have some music first. I'm a fool 
to hold you Such a fool to hold you To seek a kiss Not mine alone To share a kiss The devil has known Ah. Uh-huh. 
The room was large and stifling, and though it was already four o'clock, opening the windows admitted only a gust of hot shrubbery from the park. Daisy went to the mirror and stood with her back to us, fixing her hair. It's a swell sweet, whispered Jordan respectfully, and everyone laughed. Open another window, commanded Daisy, without turning around. There aren't any more. Well, we'd better telephone for an axe. The thing to do is to forget about the heat, said Tom impatiently. You make it ten times worse by cramming about it. He unrolled the bottle of whiskey from the towel and put it on the table. Why not let her alone, old sport, remarked Gatsby. You're the one that wanted to come to town. There was a moment of silence. The telephone book slipped from its nail and splashed to the floor, whereupon Jordan whispered, Excuse me, but this time no one laughed. I'll pick it up, I offered. I've got it. Gatsby examined the parted string, muttered, Hum, in an interested way, and tossed the book on a chair. That's a great expression of yours, isn't it? said Tom sharply. What is? All this old sport business. Where'd you pick that up? Now see here, Tom, said Daisy, turning around from the mirror. If you're going to make personal remarks, I won't stay here a minute. Call up and order some ice for the mint julep. As Tom took up the receiver, the compressed heat exploded into sound, and we were listening to the portentous chords of Mendelssohn's wedding march from the ballroom below. Imagine marrying anybody in this heat, cried Jordan dismally. Still, I was married in the middle of June, Daisy remembered. Louisville in June. Somebody fainted. Who was it fainted, Tom? Biloxi, he answered shortly. A man named Biloxi. Blocks Biloxi. And he made boxes, that's a fact. And he was from Biloxi, Tennessee. They carried him into my house, appended Jordan, because we lived just two doors from the church. And he stayed three weeks until Daddy told him he had to get out. The day after he left, Daddy died. After a moment, she added, as if she might have sounded irreverent, there wasn't any connection. I used to know a Bill Biloxi from Memphis, I remarked. That was his cousin. I knew his whole family history before he left. He gave me an aluminum putter that I use today. The music had died down as the ceremony began, and now a long cheer floated in at the window, followed by intermittent cries of, Yeah, 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 and finally by a burst of jazz as the dancing began. We're getting old, said Daisy. If we were young, we'd rise and dance. Remember Biloxi, Jordan warned her. Where'd you know him, Tom? Biloxi, he concentrated with an effort. I didn't know him. He was a friend of Daisy's. He was not, she denied. I'd never seen him before. He came down in the private car. Well, he said he knew you. He said he was raised in Louisville. Asa Bird brought him around at the last minute and asked if we had room for him. Jordan smiled. He was probably bumming his way home. He told me he was president of your class at Yale. Tom and I looked at each other blankly. Biloxi? First place we didn't have any president. Gatsby's foot beat a short, restless tattoo, and Tom eyed him suddenly. By the way, Mr. Gatsby, I understand you're an Oxford man. Not exactly. Oh, yes, I understand you went to Oxford. Yes, I went there. A pause. Then Tom's voice, incredulous and insulting. You must have gone there about the time Biloxi went to New Haven. Another pause. A waiter knocked and came in with crushed mint and ice, but the silence was unbroken by his thank you and the soft closing of the door. This tremendous detail was to be cleared up at last. I told you I went there, said Gatsby. I heard you, but I'd like to know when. It was in 1919. I only stayed five months. That's why I can't really call myself an Oxford man. Tom glanced around to see if we mirrored his unbelief, but we were all looking at Gatsby. It was an opportunity they gave to some of the officers after the armistice, he continued. We could go to any of the universities in England or France. I wanted to get up and slap him on the back. I had one of those renewals of complete faith in him that I'd experienced before. Daisy rose, smiling faintly, and went to the table. Open the whiskey, Tom, she ordered, and I'll make you a mint julep. Then you won't seem so stupid to yourself. Look at the mint. Wait a minute, snapped Tom. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one more question. Go on, Gatsby said politely. What kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyway? They were out in the open at last, and Gatsby was content. He isn't causing a row, Daisy looked desperately from one to the other. You're causing a row. Please have a little self-control. Self-control, repeated Tom incredulously. 
I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from nowhere make love to your wife. Well, if that's the idea, you can count me out. Nowadays, people begin by sneering at family life and family institutions. And next, they'll throw everything overboard and have intermarriage between black and white. Flushed with his impassioned gibberish, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization. We're all white here, murmured Jordan. I know I'm not very popular. I don't give big parties. I suppose you've got to make your house into a pigsty in order to have any friends in the modern world. Angry as I was, as we all were, I was tempted to laugh whenever he opened his mouth. The transition from libertine to prig was so complete. I've got something to tell you, old sport, began Gatsby, but Daisy guessed at his intention. Please don't, she interrupted helplessly. Please, let's all go home. Why don't we all go home? That's a good idea, I got up. Come on, Tom, nobody wants a drink. I want to know what Mr. Gatsby has to tell me. Your wife doesn't love you, said Gatsby. She's never loved you. She loves me. You must be crazy, exclaimed Tom automatically. Gatsby sprang to his feet, vivid with excitement. She never loved you, do you hear? he cried. She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart she never loved anyone except me. At this point, Jordan and I tried to go, but Tom and Gatsby insisted with competitive firmness that we remain, as though neither of them had anything to conceal and it would be a privilege to partake vicariously of their emotions. Sit down, Daisy. Tom's voice groped unsuccessfully for the paternal note. What's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I told you what's been going on, said Gatsby. Going on for five years and you didn't know. Tom turned to Daisy sharply. You've been seeing this fellow for five years. Not seeing, said Gatsby. No, we couldn't meet. But both of us loved each other all that time, old sport, and you didn't know. I used to laugh sometimes, but there was no laughter in his eyes, to think that you didn't know. Oh, that's all. Tom tapped his thick fingers together like a clergyman and leaned back in his chair. You're crazy, he exploded. I can't speak about what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then, and I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that's a goddamned lie. Daisy loved me when she married me, and she loves me now. No, said Gatsby, shaking his head. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets foolish ideas in her head and doesn't know what she's doing, he nodded sagely. And what's more, I love Daisy, too. Once in a while I go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back, and in my heart I love her all the time. You're revolting, said Daisy. She turned to me, and her voice dropping an octave lower filled the room with thrilling scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now, he said earnestly. It doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth, that you never loved him, and it's all wiped out forever. She looked at him blindly. Why, how could I love him, possibly? You never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, as though she realized at last what she was doing, and as though she had never all along intended doing anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him, she said with perceptible reluctance. Not at Capiolani, demanded Tom suddenly. No. From the ballroom beneath, muffled and suffocating cords were drifting up on hot waves of air. Not that day I carried you down from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry. There was a husky tenderness in his tone. Daisy, please don't. Her voice was cold, but the rancor was gone from it. She looked at Gatsby. There, Jay, she said. But her hand, as she tried to light a cigarette, was trembling. Suddenly she threw the cigarette and the burning match on the carpet. Oh, you want too much, she cried to Gatsby. I love you now, isn't that enough? I can't help what's past, she began to sob helplessly. I did love him once, but I loved you too. Gatsby's eyes opened and closed. You loved me too, he repeated. Even that's a lie, said Tom savagely. She didn't know you were alive. Why, there are things between Daisy and me that you'll never know, things that neither of us can ever forget. The words seemed to bite physically into Gatsby. I want to speak to Daisy alone, he insisted. She's all excited now. Even alone, I can't say I never loved Tom, she admitted in a pitiful voice. It wouldn't be true. 
Of course it wouldn't, agreed Tom. She turned to her husband. As if it mattered to you, she said. Of course it matters. I'm going to take better care of you from now on. You don't understand, said Gatsby with a touch of panic. You're not going to take care of her any more. I'm not? Tom opened his eyes wide and laughed. He could afford to control himself now. Why is that? Daisy's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though, she said with visible effort. She's not leaving me, Tom's words suddenly leaned down over Gatsby. Certainly not for a common swindler who'd have to steal the ring he put on her finger. I won't stand this, cried Daisy. Oh, please, let's get out. Who are you, anyhow? broke out Tom. You're one of that bunch that hangs around with Maya Wolfsheim. That much I happen to know. I've made a little investigation into your affairs, and I'll carry it further tomorrow. You can suit yourself about that, old sport, said Gatsby steadily. I found out what your drug stores were. He turned to us and spoke rapidly. He and this Wolfsheim bought up a lot of side-street drug stores here and in Chicago and sold grain alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him for a bootlegger the first time I saw him, and I wasn't far wrong. What about it? said Gatsby politely. I guess your friend Walter Chase wasn't too proud to come in on it. And you left him in the lurch, didn't you? You let him go to jail for a month over in New Jersey. God, you ought to hear Walter on the subject of you. He came to us dead broke. He was very glad to pick up some money, old sport. Don't you call me old sport, cried Tom. Gatsby said nothing. Walter could have you up on the betting laws, too, but Wolfsheim scared him into shutting his mouth. That unfamiliar yet recognizable look was back again in Gatsby's face. That drugstore business was just small change, continued Tom slowly. But you've got something on now that Walter's afraid to tell me about. I glanced at Daisy, who was staring, terrified, between Gatsby and her husband, and at Jordan, who had begun to balance an invisible but absorbing object on the tip of her chin. Then I turned back to Gatsby, and was startled at his expression. He looked, and this is said in all contempt for the babbled slander of his garden, as if he had killed a man. For a moment the set of his face could be described in just that fantastic way. It passed and he began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. But with every word she was drawing further and further into herself, so he gave that up, and only the dead dream fought on as the afternoon slipped away, trying to touch what was no longer tangible, struggling unhappily, undespairingly toward that lost voice across the room. The voice begged again to go, "'Please, Tom, I can't stand this any more.' Her frightened eyes told that whatever intentions, whatever courage she had had, were definitely gone. "'You two start on home, Daisy,' said Tom, "'in Mr. Gatsby's car.' She looked at Tom, alarmed now, but he insisted with magnanimous scorn, "'Go on, he won't annoy you. I think he realizes that his presumptuous little flirtation is over.' They were gone, without a word, snapped out, made accidental, isolated like ghosts, even from our pity." After a moment, Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. "'Want any of this stuff, Jordan? Nick?' I didn't answer. "'Nick?' he asked again. "'What? Want any?' "'No. I just remember that today's my birthday.' I was thirty. Before me stretched the portentous, menacing road of a new decade. It was seven o'clock when we got into the coupé with him and started for Long Island. Tom talked incessantly, exulting and laughing, but his voice was as remote from Jordan and me as the foreign clamor on the sidewalk or the tumult of the elevated overhead. Human sympathy has its limits, and we were content to let all their tragic arguments fade with the city lights behind. 30. The promise of a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning hair. But there was Jordan beside me, who, unlike Daisy, was too wise ever to carry well-forgotten dreams from age to age. As we passed over the dark bridge, her wan face fell lazily against my coat's shoulder, and the formidable stroke of thirty died away with the reassuring pressure of her hand. So we drove on toward death through the cooling twilight. Right.
maybe the lateness of the hour makes me seem bluer than I am, but in my I hope she'll be happier with him Baby, the darkness Okay, so what we had there is the Magnetic Fields with the Book of Love. And then after that we had the aforementioned hotel scene from The Great Gatsby. Like I say, that's, that's the climax of the story. Now, of course, stuff happens after that, but I don't think that much stuff... I don't think that stuff gets much more dramatic than that bit, to be quite honest. What I like about that scene is the way it kind of flips our expectations, what we've, what we've seen in the book so far. It completely flips around the roles of Gatsby, the antagonist, the protagonist rather, and Tom, the antagonist. Tom's not only the bad guy, um, but he's a violent racist as well. But now we have we have reason to feel sorry for him. And I think when you look back at that first chapter where the narrator 
Nick is uh, talking about not judging people and seeing the good in people. That's that's what we're being forced to do there. Um, despite the fact that Tom's oh he's a, he's a Nazi as well, we're forced into a little bit of sympathy for him. And um, of course, the sexual politics nowadays are very different from what they were in the nineteen twenties. So, you know, I I could be seeing this just simply through the prism of nowadays, of modern times. But it's also the bit where we start to see the hero as being a little bit unhinged. Um, which, which is confirmed closer to the end. But, you know, all of a sudden... The bad guy is getting some th- some, some sympathy, and the good guy is starting to be a bit of a dick. Um, what I also appreciate about this scene is just how this argument between these two men is so palpable. And in saying that, what we also have is the heat. It's literally a hot day when this takes place. And that heat is used as a metaphor. Uh, Very literal sense that the argument is fiery. But also in the sense that it's oppressive. That it's an atmosphere that is, well, oppressive to the other people present. Jordan and Nick... Which is another another bit I really like, how you just you have these two other awkward third wheel characters, one of whom is the one who the story is being told from the point of from the point of view of, and uh, they're stuck in the middle of this very awkward situation, and don't know what to do with it. And so, from that, we just get the full range of human emotions taking place. Now, uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll play some more music. This is What's a Girl to Do by Bat for Lashes. And uh, then there's something else that I want to talk about to close out the show. And that'll be the end of it. We walked arm in arm, but I didn't feel his touch. The desire I'd first tried to hide, that tingling inside, was gone. Shared. It's all blackened out. And my bat 
Yep. Okay, so here's that one last thing that I wanted to talk to you about. I heard this story once, and I have no idea if it's true, but I've just Googled it to look it up, and uh, it's at least true in the sense that it exists on the internet. But the story goes like this. When he was working at Time magazine, Hunter S. Thompson dug out an old typewriter and used it to copy down The Great Gatsby. Just just write it out, transcribe it. He also did Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. He did this in order to learn about the writing styles of authors and feel what just feel what writing a great novel was like. I suppose this explains why that story, The Great Gatsby, um, oh, always makes me feel like writing. I think it's also the fact that it's nice and accessible. It's, it's a short novel. It's only about 100 pages long. Now, anyway, I've, I've always felt that there's no wrong way to write. You know, there's, and there's, there's stuff like flash fiction to, um, to back up that idea. It's just sort of you put pen to paper and you start writing. So that's why I've always thought of it as a very... Well, that's why I've always felt that writing was a very democratic art form. Now, we have something coming up in November. It's called NaNoWriMo. That's got to be one of the clumsiest names they've ever come up for any for, for anything. But yeah, anyway, it's called NaNoWriMo. And that's short for National Novel Writing Month. The nation of national is America, but that doesn't matter. Um, you join up on the internet and you can join up with a bunch of other people and support them as they write their novels as well. The great thing is, you don't actually have to do it. Um, there's no penalties or anything stupid like that if you don't get to novel length. Um, it, it's just a writing exercise, but the design is to push you. So um, I'm going to be doing that this year. Um, it's a lot of fun. And the other great thing about it is that you can prepare by, uh, well, doing whatever the hell you like. Um, writing short pieces of flash fiction. Uh, even if you're in other art forms, I always find writing is a good way to start off being creative. Um, all it requires is a pen and paper, and it gets those juices flowing. So anyway, that's, that's the thought that I want to leave you with, that I wanted to leave you with. Just that idea that uh, if you get stuck in any art form, writing is a good way to work it out. And uh, it's a good pastime to have anyway. So that brings us to the end of the show. Now, I'm looking back at my show notes and... For some reason, I chose Beyonce to end the show, Halo. Um, it's a great song, but I have no idea what possessed me to choose that one. So, it doesn't really feel appropriate right now. Um, I might go with something else. So, just listen for whatever comes up next. You'll probably like it.
Cause you're my thrill You're my thrill How my pulse increases I just go pieces Every time I look at you I can't keep still Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning... So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. 